From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Mental health is an extremely important part of life when talking about happiness, safety, and survival. In marginalized communities, the stakes are even higher. The LGBTQ community experiences increased rates of suicide, suicide ideation, and violence. These truths are real experiences for people in these communities, but often go unreported to healthcare providers. On the second episode of our series, Community Engaged, Dr. Anna Progovats and Mason Dunn discuss with us their efforts to improve data collection and contextualize the health disparities the LGBTQ community faces every day. Dr. Anna Progovats is a researcher at Cambridge Health Alliance and Harvard Medical School. Mason Dunn is the Director of Advocacy at Keshet, an organization that works for LGBTQ equality and Jewish life. Dr. Progovats, Mason, how are you? Welcome. Thank you. Great, thank you. So before we get started, I wonder if you could each just introduce yourselves to the audience. Sure. Um, my name is Anna Progovats, and I'm a researcher at Cambridge Health Alliance and Harvard Medical School. Um, my pronouns are she, her, hers, and um, I'm just here today uh, as the sort of lead researcher on the project looking at uh, disparities in mental health for transgender populations uh, locally and uh, nationally. Yeah, and my name is uh, Mason Dunn. I am currently the Director of Advocacy for Keshet, an organization that works for LGBTQ equality and Jewish life. Uh, before that, I was the Executive Director of the Massachusetts Transgender Political Coalition and co-chair of the Yes on Three campaign locally here in Massachusetts. Uh, so I'm a transgender rights advocate, educator, uh, and I also I use he, him, or they, them, theirs pronouns. Great. Thank you both very much for being here. Before we get started in the conversation, we're going to be talking about... Um, your research in trans health issues, Dr. Progovats. But before we do that, I wanted to um, ask you both, or maybe Mason, if you could, just kind of lay out some of the terms that we're going to be using and help us understand what the meaning for those terms are, because there's a lot of different terms people use in the LGBTQ and specifically trans community, and I want to make sure that we're all clear on uh, what we mean and what we're talking about. Absolutely. And, and language is really an important place to start so that we all kind of understand who we're talking about and what this community looks like. Uh, so some of the terms you'll hear, first of all, is the term transgender. Uh, and there's a lot of misconceptions about what the term transgender actually means. The definition we use uh, most commonly in the advocacy world is somebody whose gender identity differs from society's expectations based on the sex they were assigned at birth. Uh, and so it's important to understand all of the different factors that um, the difference between sex and gender, uh, the difference between gender identity and gender expression. Gender identity is who you know yourself to be. Gender expression is how you communicate that to the world around you. Uh, and so there's a lot of terms wrapped up in that, but uh, it's, uh, it's a complex and uh, beautiful 
community. Uh, another term you'll hear is the term cisgender. Uh, cisgender is a word we use to describe somebody who is not transgender or uh, uh, pulling that part a little further, somebody whose gender identity or gender expression aligns with the society's expectations based on the sex they are assigned at birth. Uh, another term is non-binary or gender non-binary, and that means somebody whose gender identity doesn't fit into the binary of man or woman, uh, and so is both or neither or beyond uh, either of those binary assumptions. Uh, another is gender non-conforming, and that usually speaks to somebody's gender expression that doesn't conform to, again, society's expectations uh, of masculinity or femininity. And then uh, the last term I'll mention here um, that I know Anna will go into as well is the term gender minority, uh, which really is a, a full umbrella term that encapsulates trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming people, somebody whose gender identity uh, is not uh, within society's expectations uh, and therefore often a minority in Western society. Yeah, and we in our research uh, publications typically use gender minority as an umbrella term. Um, a lot of what we're doing, and I'll talk about this more later, uh, we don't actually get to ask people about their identity. And so a lot of times what we're picking up in the data um, is more uh, fluid and we're not exactly sure how people would identify. So that's one thing. It's, it's nice to be able to just use that term um, more generally. Um, but the other thing is that that is sort of more of a researchy term. And I think the first few terms that Mason outlined tend to be more used in the community as well. And so um, we always add those terms into our papers to try to make sure people know um, both uses. Um, but there there are sort of more and more terms and more and more ways that people might identify. So it's, it is nice to have this kind of umbrella term to say, you know, everyone who whose gender identity doesn't necessarily match the sex assigned at birth. You talked about how language is so important. And maybe you could talk about what that means to somebody who is gender non-binary or who is transgender and why that is so important. It is important on so many levels and life-changing, life-saving in many instances. Uh, for many trans people who maybe uh, grew up not knowing the term transgender but had this vague, hard-to-describe disconnect between what society says they were supposed to be and who they knew themselves to be. And to be able to have language out there to describe that, uh, describe that to friends, to families, to doctors, um, is life-changing and life-saving. Um, and so it gives voice to so many people who may not otherwise have a voice or find a voice. And it's important for people to understand the language to describe somebody else. Um, you know, it, rather than saying, oftentimes uh, trans folks are assumed to be uh, gay, lesbian, or bisexual. And it's important that we understand that gender identity is very different than our sexual orientation. But so often gender identity uh, or sexual orientation is wrapped up in uh, expectations of gender expression. Um, that if somebody is uh, a f an effeminate man, he must be gay. And what is, the, what is the possibility of that person actually being a trans woman struggling to find the language and find the, the words to put to their experience? Uh, and so th there's a lot that I could say about language. I, I am somewhat of a, a student of linguists uh, lingu and language in general, but um, I think that it can be and, and should be something that we all have an awareness for. I am actually the daughter of a linguist, oh, coincidentally. Nice. <laughs> so. 
um, that was great. Uh, thanks, Mason. So um, let's talk about um, the research. And you were awarded a Catalyst pilot grant. Um, and you Could you describe a little bit the project that you were awarded the grant for? Yes, of course. So this project came through um, Harvard Catalyst and was specifically asking for community engagement, um, which is actually how we ended up meeting Mason. Um, so our pitch was that we wanted to use um, sort of new approach to looking at data for mental health disparities um, and uh, violence victimization using data sets where we actually already have data, so places like Medicare claims data and also the Cambridge Health Alliance electronic health record data. But uh, these are data sets that don't uh, have a place where people uh, voluntarily report their gender identity, or in other words, it hadn't been collected. Um, this is slowly changing, at least in, in at CHA, um, so far, to my knowledge, not in Medicare. But uh, our approach was to uh, use a, a sort of method based on looking for specific diagnoses that tend to uh, describe someone having distress from a mismatch between their gender identity and their sex assigned at birth. Um, and also in the local data, we could also look through um, clinician notes. So we could look for keywords where somebody, for example, had indicated that somebody identified as transgender. And, and so we were going to use this sort of novel, not invented by us, but pretty new in the research community approach to try to get at more population level data and then specifically look at um, suicide outcomes, so suicide attempt and suicidal ideation, and also whether someone had been uh, a victim of violence and had actually come in to receive medical treatment for, um, for that. Uh, and then we actually got to pitch some of this to, uh, I think it was called a community engagement studio, uh, which had a number of community and advocacy partners that Catalyst had um, enlisted to help sort of screen these uh, initial pitches and actually give us a lot of feedback that we then used to refine the application. So even before we could submit a full application. And we got such good feedback from Mason that um, we really thought it would be great if we could ask him to help out. So we actually asked him to to join our advisory board and he did. So we're we're still chatting today. So it went well. <laughs> and he's been giving us such such useful feedback throughout the project. Um, and it's been also so great for us to understand what's kind of at the forefront of the advocacy and policy needs as we're shifting, you know, our priorities moving out of this project and into new ones and, and trying to make sure that we understand how how researchers and the data that we kind of collect and the types of analyses that we do can actually be informative for the sort of the most um, current issues in the community. Could you tell us a little bit more about how the community studio process worked and um, maybe like walk us through what that looked like a little bit? Yeah, I'd actually love to hear your experience too since you got to hear a bunch of them, but um, ours was pretty much we were to prepare, I think it was like 30 minute pitch um, and kind of came into a room with, I think it was like 12 or 15 uh, community representatives um, with all different backgrounds. The focus of this call was LGBT disparities. So it was, um, you know, educators, researchers, advocates, um, folks from all different backgrounds. Uh, and, and we walked through what we were um, thinking our main aims to be and our approaches. And we had 
a very um, informative sort of question and answer discussion section about um, people's concerns about, uh, you know, who we might be missing or approaches to analyses. I think at the time we had a bit more of a focus initially on trying to do um, prediction around suicide attempt, and, and we're still kind of working on that on the side, but there was really a focus on prioritizing community engagement, um, being careful about the kind of ethics of any prediction models that um, there was lots of feedback from the community about, um, and maybe you can speak more on this, just on um, wariness around just, you know, using data in general without um, without people um, in the room and understanding how their data might be used. And if someone were to um, to design an intervention to just be very mindful of, of how that's introduced to somebody, a patient, for example. Um, so I don't know if Mason, you want to jump in. Yeah. And so the, where anytime you bring uh, a group of trans people together and, and have a room that is predominantly, if not all trans folks, um, is a really amazing experience um, as a trans person, but also as somebody who does this work professionally every time it, it just astounds me. And so a lot of the conversation was, first of all, just looking around the room and realizing that we were, you know, all trans and, and non-binary or gender non-conforming members of this community. Uh, and then to be asked about our opinion about something so um, personal for, for many of us, and that's what kept coming to the top was just the personal stories and the personal touches on the research where, you know, there would there would be some kind of assertion around health and somebody around the table would say, oh, yeah, I've experienced that or more than one person saying, oh, yeah, that's that's the status quo. That's normal um, or, or things like that where it really was affirming of the research to, to have so many people saying this is true, this is what happens, this is what I've experienced. Uh, and so I think that that, um, that was kind of an important connection between uh, lived experience and research data coming together. Um, I will just also clarify, I think I was responding to the initial community. Oh, okay, yeah, studio. sorry. And Mason's talking about the community forum slash studio okay. Okay. so Sorry. no no that's that was great i was just um i wasn't sure if i, I might have responded in the wrong way but there yeah there were two yeah. things so before we got the grant got okay. mason was one of the sort of panelists that we presented to um, but then also towards the end of our grant we hosted a community forum um, in cambridge at the library and that was uh, a place where we had sort of table leaders mm -hmm. each of the table leaders was either trans or at least LGBT, we the research team tried to take a sort of step back and just be kind of note takers as much as possible. Yeah. Um, we had Amelia Dunham facilitating. Uh, she was wonderful um, and Mason was a table leader too. And that, um, that, that was where uh, sort of the format was that we, um, we probably wrote too many things on paper, but basically we shared summary data points. Um, so basically, uh, you know, in the local data, we found people we identified in the health records as gender minorities had um, six times higher rates of um, suicide attempt, and that was uh, 6% versus 1% of the population. And then when you look at actually um, anyone having thought about suicide and having that actually documented in the health record um, over this, this is a 10-year time period, so um, 2008 to 2017, 
it was about 18% of the people in the gender minority cohort that had a documented ideation, um, which again means they had to come in and somebody had to write that down and document it that way in the notes. Um, and that was compared to about uh, 2% of people in the, the rest of CHA. So that's a, that's a pretty huge difference. Um, and we also saw that rates of exposure to violence were about three times higher in the in the gender minority cohort, which um, again, there may be lots of reasons that that's underreported. The, the really, I think, um, also interesting thing, when we looked at the intersection of suicidality and violence, we found that um, for everyone, but especially for the cohort here that we identified um, as gender minority in the data, Basically, if you are somebody who has had um, or has a, a victimization, so if you've been a victim of violence and we see it in the data, you're much more likely to have um, attempted suicide or um, thought about suicide. Uh, so the numbers kind of go up a lot. So for the um, for the the gender minority group, for example, who has experienced violence victimization, it's like 23% now have um, have actually. Uh, suicidal ideation and that's versus 18 percent or six percent so um that's versus like 18 percent overall so it goes up a bit um and so we saw sort of similar numbers overall lower in the medicare claims kind of Mm -hmm. the same um the same general trends but generally the rates of um suicidality were about two uh two times higher and i don't have the numbers off the top of my head splitting out attempt and ideation in in that cohort um but it's pretty um, pretty stark differences. So every time we looked at them, they were significant. And even when we kind of adjust for mental health conditions, which is one way of trying to get at, you know, is this just due to differences in depression and anxiety prevalence? Um, even when we adjust for those things, we're still seeing really big differences. So um, it's not sort of just due to those diagnoses, at least. And um, that's one way of trying to figure out um, you know, is it is it just that people with higher depression and anxiety are having more suicide attempts? Certainly that's true. But even when we look um, look under the hood and kind of try to get a slightly more um, even distribution of those conditions in these two populations, we're still seeing really big differences, which suggests that there's even more of an issue going on um, in the gender minority group. And so we sort of would share what we were finding and then ask people to to think on those numbers and Mm -hmm. what we heard was a lot of um things like these these numbers still seem too low that Mm -hmm. they're not as high as i see among people that i speak with um and then lots of really rich stories about why people may not report a suicidal ideation um, why people might be reluctant to go into medical centers or medical um systems at all when they're in distress and and that was really uh valuable and sorry i'll let you, I'll let you no 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 that's a, thank you for differentiating because yeah, no, it was all wrapped good. up yeah. uh, for me so thank you well so yeah it sounds like you're you know we talked about the community studio and that was sort of um you had your idea and then you pitched it to the community studio mm-hmm. you got feedback about you know th- maybe this is what you should be looking at this you're on the right track or adjust this here and then you went did the research and then came back to get feedback on the study. Yeah, with a different population. Yeah, to get sort of like a check, like is this accurate, is this what, do these findings make sense to you? Yeah, exactly. And the the people who came into the the community forum, forum, 
were people who we recruited not through necessary not as researchers or, or right. advocates necessarily um, but through sort of different networks um, including listservs that Mason and others. Uh, so there's a pretty wide array of people yeah. in the trans community. Yes, and and um, I would say much more varied, for example, in age than mm-hmm. an experience than um, the community studio, which was mostly sort of professional right. uh, experience, experience people, which also was good for us to just be, we had to be so thoughtful and careful about, you know, how we were communicating this information and, and really thoughtful. It's very sensitive information that we're sharing and also asking people to share so um it it was it was definitely a different tone i think than the community engagement the the prior kind of researchy studio where everyone was used to talking about these things Mm -hmm. and and used to sort of thinking of these things in research terms so um it was definitely a very different uh experience i think for all of us and and very um very important for how we've thought about the research framed framing our papers framing our grants going forward we, we've tried to incorporate a lot of that feedback into how we interpret and share the findings to make sure that we're reflecting on the way that that the people at the studio reflected on the data too it's a really important lesson that other researchers can and should learn from is before you put this out as you're thinking about the data that mm-hmm. you're collecting bring it to the communities most impacted mm-hmm. um, and hear what they have to say um, I, I would love to see more of that happening on a regular basis when it comes to research and data. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. It just makes me think of, you know, initially the sort of first draft of the the paper looking at differences in suicide outcomes. I think the way we wrote it was very just re- researchy and, and just um, the way that we write most of our kind of more boring papers maybe and we we had some great feedback from one of our advisory board members um just cautioning really really cautioning us about just broadly saying things like well there's more mental health uh burdens in the trans community with without being really careful for example to say it's mostly depression and anxiety and a lot of it comes from stigma and discrimination and 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 so what we learned was that sometimes people might use a phrase like that to say, oh, you know, people in the trans community have more sort of serious mental illness and, and psychosis, which isn't true. And that, that that you have to be really careful with what you're saying and how you're saying it um, because people can interpret things very differently. And so we also, when we were writing up the sort of discussion section of that paper, we really spent a lot of time framing um, you know, what what came from the forum as far as things that might be helpful and also ways where we might be missing, um, you know, reports of, of suicide attempt because it's, it's medical record data mm-hmm. or claims data. So that helped us. We, we really looked through the literature of what was out there as far as why people may not report, um, both because um, of, you know, fear of being, for example, hospitalized, which was something that came up in the forum a lot uh you know if you're hospitalized then you're you know you could kind of derail your whole life but also you're exposing yourself to a whole nother uh place where you don't know how you're going to be treated by staff or by other patients and you know there's a lot of policies that you may be that may be out of your control around like 
bed assignment or or mm-hmm. bathrooms mm-hmm. all these little seemingly little things that become really big things in a crisis and so it, that was really helpful i think so we could we could put all that in the paper um and use that use that information to really i think make the paper much richer and so that anyone who reads the paper um hopefully someone accepts it <laughs> if anyone reads the paper they can really have i think that that voice of what's important to the community is is in there so so that was really um, it was very helpful. We learned a lot, uh, and it's been really informative. Yeah. Both of you have talked about the importance of quantifying the problem, uh, giving you know concrete numbers to the amount of people that are experiencing disparities. How is this work and you know the follow-up work you want to do, how does that accomplish this goal of improving care? Yeah, I think it starts, um, you know, and maybe in all of our work, it sort of starts with showing that disparity. You kind of need to put something into numbers, I think, to get some groups really engaged. And then I think bringing in the stories is so helpful and so important to figuring out what's really going on on the ground. Where can we go? What are the right kind of solutions and how can we do this really in partnership with the people who are experiencing all this firsthand. So um, I think, you know, we're really early on in the work, but some of our sort of, or at least my early kind of reflections on ways in which this has worked is, for example, when we kind of brought both this quantitative data and reactions from the community forum into like a presentation um, to providers at Cambridge Health Alliance. And, you know, it was really neat for me to watch people first be really kind of taken in by the numbers. Okay, these are really serious differences that we're seeing, and this is our data now. This isn't, you know, an anonymous survey where we can sort of say, you know, but we're better here, or we don't think this is such a problem here. It's Cambridge or it's Massachusetts. We are in a relative bubble um, nationwide if people are coming, you know, all the way from different states to kind of come locally, but still, we're, we're still seeing these huge differences and being able to, um, show these national numbers is really important. Um, but I think now that we can start to do this in health systems, or there are ways to look at this data and, and health systems are starting to add um, self-reported gender identity and hopefully doing that in a thoughtful way with plenty of training from people like Mason about how to do that right. Um, you can start to reflect data back, I think, to systems and to providers. And that's really powerful. And I think what else is powerful is having you know the the inclusion of the community to say and reflect on what those data mean to them and what they would like to see happen as far as approaches so i saw people's kind of um boredom shift to this is really seems like a big problem and then when the the stories were coming through um from what we heard in the forum things like you know actually i might be hesitant to tell my doctor if i was having suicidal ideation And, and these are people who you know, CHAs, it's a safety net health system, very, um, very equity focused, um, very social justice focused. Overall, the providers, I think, really identify in that way that they're there to help everyone and including and especially the most vulnerable patients. And they would never want anyone to feel like they couldn't talk to them about something this important. So I think that really kind of hit people hard that even in the local community and sort of even in the system, we're seeing differences in in suicide attempts and we're seeing people say, I'm not always gonna tell my doctor if I'm feeling that way. So to me, I think it's it starts kind of on our end, slowly building up the data, 
finding the right people to feed the data to and 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 then also really in our experience it's it's sort of the advocate community that goes out there and does the hard work of figuring out like what what are the policies that we really need to go after mason's a great example of being involved in a policy win just this past week so 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 we really see our role as um you know understanding what what types of data are we missing or how can we um do rigorous analyses to kind of point out where problems are or or where we might see avenues um, for more data collection or, or maybe using that data to inform interventions. Um, but then also there's such a role for um, individuals coming in from the community and telling us their stories. And there's such a role for advocates going out and then saying, look, look at this data, here's what we think needs to happen. So I think it's a very um, complex web of effort, um, but mm-hmm. we sort of see our role as, you know, we're the, we're the data people, so we're going to try to help in that way. Right, and so then that the data people help the policy people. So what are the policy needs right now? And um, Anna, you alluded to the policy win in the past week. Could you talk about that? Yeah, the, the policy win in the last week was the, the House uh, passing the Equality Act federally in D.C. Uh, and the Equality Act is a uh, national non-discrimination uh, piece of legislation that would say that housing, uh, schools, and places of public accommodation, which include things like hospitals and nursing facilities, cannot discriminate on the basis of somebody's gender identity or sexual orientation. Um, And so it passed in the House. uh, This piece of legislation, uh, some iterations of it have been proposed since 1974 and never made it this far. Uh, And so it's it's a really big moment. and, and that's at the federal level. Uh, at the state-based level, we have here in Massachusetts passed uh, fully inclusive non-discrimination protections, now including gender identity, which we had to um, defend the gender identity public accommodations access piece on the ballot last November, uh, which we thankfully won by 67%. Um, not that I have that number memorized uh, <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, and Mason, wasn't that one of the first, is sort of the first uh, like referendum, public referendums? I'm probably getting that language. Yeah, no, you're, you're close. It's the first time a state has ever voted on transgender rights okay. yeah. uh, on the ballot. Uh, there have been local ordinances that have been voted on in uh, uh, Houston, Anchorage, uh, Seattle, and a few other places. Uh, but this was the first time it was a state-based vote on transgender rights, uh, which the very idea of voting on the, the human rights of an entire population by a, a state seems terrible but at least we won minority population exactly um but there are a lot of other areas of policy work yet to be done that that this information and this data can really help inform uh one that we are working on in massachusetts right now is winning non-binary gender markers on state ids Uh, and so when you have a state id and it says gender and has an m or an f if you are uh, non-binary uh m or f does not apply uh, to who you know yourself to be. And so we're advocating for adding a non-binary gender marker or an X gender marker onto state IDs. And that is informed by, you know, the, the non-binary uh, folks who are in systems uh, like healthcare systems, but it will also force healthcare systems to recognize non-binary gender in their own data. And, and right, therefore... if you come in and say, here's my ID and it's got an X on it, like... Uh, yeah. 
I guess we got to create a new checkbox. Yep. And there's a whole lot of database people out there right now whose heads are exploding. Um, <laughs> it can be done. I've it's worked with checkbox guys. Uh, you know, <laughs> I've worked with uh, databases to make them uh, inclusive for non-binary folks. It can be done. And if the RMV can do it in their database, oh yeah, that's you true. You can too. We've all seen that sloth video from what's yes. Utopia. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So, uh, but that kind of uh, information is is really important and will open up so many new avenues for data collection. If we na- can now go into state data and say, here are all the people with non-binary gender markers, we have a much better idea of who is non-binary in our state or, or right. who has these gender markers. Uh, and and so, that gets back to the heart of the issue, which is we don't even know based on the data. Yeah, we haven't who's, known. Yeah, yeah. And historically, like you can't, even with these new policies, which will be great for understanding health disparities moving forward, um, you know, you can't look backwards. No. Which is something we've been doing with at least the claims data and the EHR data and this kind of other method, which isn't perfect, but at least you can say, you know, here's data from the last 10 years. Um, Another paper that we're doing with the Medicare uh, claims data, we've been able to look at mental health trends, utilization trends, excuse me, in in those claims and and so we're we're seeing some some things like more medication use and less maybe outpatient use uh, less visits so it's something that's sort of happening seemingly um, across all populations actually but we can see differences for people with minority gender identities and we can start to say like look here's what's happening you know if this is happening do we have providers who are ready to um, understand how psychotropic medications and hormones are interacting and be ready to to really have that expertise. Um, so so things like that, I think there's still, um, there, there's definitely going to be, I think, a need for more training as we have these different gender markers. So anyone who's taking IDs, anyone who's taking um you know, a front desk staff who's who's checking somebody in now needs to really know what they're talking about when they see, um, when they see a, a sort of third or fourth or fifth option, and and so those are those are also places where we hear like waiting rooms can be places where where people often experience um, discrimination and sometimes, frankly, um, violence. I've heard like several personal stories now from people saying that when they were misgendered in a hospital or, or clinic waiting room that some, somebody else who was in the waiting room, uh, you know, became distressed by their presentation versus how the name that they were called by and actually punched them. So, and Mason probably has heard a lot more such stories, but it's, um, those are things where I think it's probably part of the reason that health systems have been slow sometimes to, go full force with um, changing something in addition to sort of just the, I think the, you know, somebody has to program this and now we have these clunky systems that need to change. But you do have to make sure that everyone who's interacting with this data is doing so in the right way. Mm. And and I don't think it's necessarily hard, but it is a, a resource. You have to devote resources to it. You have to get the right people to train, to train everyone. And um, I think it's definitely a step in the right direction that people still have to make kind of mindfully. So I don't know if you have thoughts about if you've trained uh, health systems as they're shifting to, yeah, you probably have. Lots of- I, I, I've done a lot of trainings uh, of health systems. Uh, and yeah, you know, there are, are so many areas where it feels as though people want to do the right thing. They just need the language. Mm -hmm. I'm going to bring this full circle here. They need the language to do so. They need the information and they need 
to be comfortable in using that language appropriately, whether it's using they, them, theirs pronouns instead of he or she pronouns, whether it's uh, making sure you use the right name, even if that's not the name that somebody has listed on their insurance card or their ID, understanding that a common use name over a legal name is really important when calling out in a waiting room, Mm -hmm. Uh, asking somebody how they describe their body in a medical exam, uh, mm-hmm. rather than just using terms that may close off that communication. Um, all of those things are uh, areas where health systems and centers just need to, to begin to ask those questions and find the resources to get the answers they need. Right. Well, thank you both so much. It was great to have this conversation with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks, Mason, for coming. Yeah. Next time on Think Research. There is a huge unmet clinical need for new and more effective uh, treatments for fibroid diseases. The problem is this field is literally 20 years behind immunology or 30 years behind uh, tumor biology. Dr. David Lagares discusses his work on anti-inflammatory drugs for chronic lung injury. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast... Please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.